Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 52 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, author, media and PR coach, copywriter, editor and proofreader and founder of Vegan Business Media, a content, events and training platform providing success tips for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. In this episode, I interview Stephanie Redcross from marketing and training consultancy Vegan Mainstream in Florida. Stephanie is a pioneer in providing services to vegan business owners. She started Vegan Mainstream in 2009 after leaving the corporate world where she worked for many years for Fortune 500 companies such as GE so she could meld her passion for entrepreneurship with her love for the vegan lifestyle. She formed many of the vegan professional groups on Facebook, Google Plus and LinkedIn which still flourish today many with several thousand members, such as Vegan Professional Network, on Facebook. Along with her live events and one-on-one coaching services, Stephanie runs webinars and online classes for vegan entrepreneurs in different aspects of running a business. Stephanie is a genuine collaborator. She's been working in this field for several years and she's always keen and willing to share her expertise. As well as the Vegan Mainstream blog, Stephanie is also collaborating with Vegan Business Media on a video series in 2017, and she has a regular column in the digital magazine Vegan Lifestyle. In this interview, Stephanie talks about the importance of organising your week and a smart strategy to do this without getting overwhelmed, the two kinds of lists you need to make and how to evaluate what goes on each one, A key social media trend vegan business owners would be wise to embrace in 2017. When and how often you should work on your business rather than in it. Why fast growth in your business is not necessarily a good thing. Why you should pay yourself something from day one of your business and much more. Here's the interview with Stephanie Redcross from Vegan Mainstream. Hello, Stephanie. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. This is really exciting. I'm really happy to kick off the new year, actually, um, 2017, with someone like yourself, because, you know, you really are a a pioneer in providing business coaching and marketing services for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. You've been doing this for some time, well before it was cool and trendy. So I'm really happy to kick off the new year um, with someone with your amazing expertise, skills and passion. So let's first of all, this is the question I ask everyone to kick off with. What are your drivers for running your business? Tell us why you do what you do? Well, I would probably say I'm just, I'm really passionate about vegan businesses. And the reason I'm so passionate about vegan businesses is I guess just being a vegan myself. I used to get a little frustrated when like my favorite vegan restaurant would go out of business or the company that I love that maybe made that vegan cake that I was like, oh, that is the best cake in the whole wide world they would go out of business and I would shake my head and go, why? What is happening? What support, what infrastructure, what don't they have to help them be successful? And that's when I started to say, well, can I play a role there? Is there something that I can do 
to help those businesses, something I can do to kind of support those businesses. So with me having a marketing background, with me kind of also having a corporate background, it's given me the opportunity to say, can I leverage my skills to help these businesses? And that's really been what I've been doing all these years is really taking what I've learned, what I've had exposure to. I mean, I come from an entrepreneurial background with my parents having businesses the entire time I was a kid. I mean, my parents had art business. They did expos. We even had a beer distributor, which is kind of an interesting thing. Oh, wow. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> but I say that to say, you know, like understanding kind of transactional businesses versus, you know, being in the art business is much more high, you know, higher scale, more expensive and so forth. So different type of audiences. And kind of seeing it as a kid, you know, behind the scenes, working, helping out and so forth. And then, you know, going through the cycle, starting to work in businesses, working for large corporations like GE and so forth. It's given me an opportunity to kind of apply all of that learning to the vegan space and say, what can we do to make these businesses successful? Because many of the businesses that are maybe not here anymore they had great products. Now, it's a little different. You don't have an amazing product or amazing service. Sometimes you will stumble. Um, and you need help to get back on pat on track. It doesn't mean that you have to count you out if you don't have an amazing product. But there are some people that do have amazing products and services, and they just struggle. And what I want to do is really help them, whether it's support they get from me, whether it's me connecting them with someone else, whether it's me. Even sometimes I get on the, fo- on the phone with people, and sometimes they just need a pep talk. They're just tired yeah. of it's hard and it's so much work and and so forth that sometimes they just need someone to say, it's supposed to be like that. It's okay. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you're not the only one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're all feeling that. So absolutely. Well, that actually leads very nicely into my next question is about where well, one of the key challenges of I'm vegan business owners, particularly those starting out and, and bootstrapping find challenges is, is having a challenging is to having to juggle so many different things. And particularly nowadays, you know, as well as offering the actual services or products, the pay paperwork and of course you know marketing and social media and everything so as we kick off 2017 um, and I know this is an area that you're you're really good at and organizing and managing your time um, what are some tips and strategies you can suggest to help us manage our time and not succumb constantly to overwhelm I mean the biggest thing I find to kind of feel not so overwhelmed is you really have to get organized Um, And I know for some people, they're like, oh, I like to operate for my gut or, you know what I mean? I like to get an idea and chase it down. And in some cases and sometimes that's a great thing. But overarching for a business, a business really needs well-documented processes and operating rhythms. And when you get big, you almost have to do it. But when you're small, you're a solopreneur, maybe it's like two or three or four people in your business, you think you don't have to be that organized or that, you know, documented. But I really, really recommend to people that they should. And when I say organized, sometimes it's even just you as the business owner, like literally getting down to like your work hours. Like how do you organize your week? How do you organize your month? I mean, while there needs to be like strategic planning and so forth, and we can talk more about that if you want to go there. But what I find what most people are stumbling is organizing their weeks, meaning what they thought they were going to do on Monday. And when Saturday shows up, they haven't even touched the project that they, <laughs> <laughs> they planned to do on Monday. Like, they're like, what happened? Like someone stole those days, you know? 
(laughs) What I find for people is they don't really have a plan. So I actually have a tool where I sit down and say, okay, if I take my week, what does my week look like? What do I normally do on Mondays? What do I do on Tuesdays? And even from that, I break it down. So when I look at my day, if I'm a big email person and say you're not a person that can, you know, wait to the afternoon to check your emails, then put 30 minutes in your schedule um, in the morning to look at email. Now, personally, I always start with planning. So I normally start with 30 minutes to an hour, depending on what I have going on, that I'm planning my day. I'm making sure there's no fire drills, there's no issues, there's nothing. Then after that, I start looking at email. Now, when after I look at email, sometimes I have to make adjustments to plans because I have clients. So sometimes I have client demands, but then I'll go back and I'll say, okay, for my day, this is what I originally had planned out. This needs to have some adjustment. So this is my priorities for the day, not my wish list. Cause I think we we dream big, like, you know, we, 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 we think we can move mountains (laughs) and we can, it's just sometimes you can't do it in like an eight hour day. So absolutely. I like that. I like that differentiation between the priorities and the wish list. And don't, yeah, don't make a wish list, make a priorities list. I love that. Maybe that's a little tweetable, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then from there, it's just organizing your day as general, meaning like for me as a client based business, what I do is I have set hours every week that I set aside for meetings. So as a general rule, I don't have meetings any time of the day. I normally have meetings on like Tuesdays and Thursdays between two and five. Um, I have a morning hour on Wednesday. I have some, um, I don't do any client meetings on Fridays. So I literally sit down. Now, is there going to be an exception to rule that a client needs me and I have a one-off meeting? Yes. But as a general rule, I try to organize things into blocks so that meetings don't train wreck my, my week as well as people know when I'm generally free because I can work to that and make sure that if someone needs to meet me or need help, I know my two to five o'clock hour on Tuesday is definitely going to be available um, unless another client jumps in there, but most likely available so I can do that. Um, I also set up time for social media. If you're a big social media person, great. Set aside time for that. If you want to do it two times a week, three times a week, put a slot in there. But the key is, and especially the reason why I do this in time slots, um, and I can share with you if you want when you put this post out um, a link to to mine. Um, but the reason I do things in slots is it's not always just what we need to do in the day. It's the amount of time we allocate to it. So some of us will jump on social media and we'll be on there for like two and a half hours. And that's too <laughs> that's much me. Time. You know what I mean? Like it might have been good learning and it might have been a lot of fun. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I have a blast too. But you really need about 30 minutes to do what you have to do from a business standpoint on social media. And there's a good discipline around putting together maybe 30 minute slots. Maybe it's every day. So that way you're always touching it. But if you can sit down and say, okay, I'm only have 30 minutes, what am I going to do with those 30 minutes? then you start to do a better job of prioritizing your time because you you see your time is less as unlimited, but you see it more as focused. Mm. And that's, that's really, yeah, that's, that's really cool. What I'm hearing there, Steph, is like 
this all sounds fantastic, but it's kind of like it feels almost almost exhausting having to put that organization in place. I'm guessing that's maybe a mindset thing that, that business owners need to get over. To, do you know what I mean? Because you're sort of saying, right, get organized. The idea of getting organized almost seems like it's going to take away from running the business aspect. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, it can feel like that. Anytime you put structure in place, structure, you feel structure. I mean, it's just like if you're in a yeah. business. I mean, if you woke up any day and you know, you make, you make cakes, let's say, for example, and you say, well, I make cakes when I wake up or whenever I feel like it. That's cool. But if you have to start doing distribution and they have to be shipped out every day or the delivery truck comes, you have to put a structure in place. And that means you have to bake at a specific time every day. That is a pain. Everyone feels that pain versus that freedom, but it does yield results. And I think what we want to be focused on is the results as well as it doesn't have to be too tight. Like some people wanted, when I talk about blocks, you may say that I have a yoga block in there. I mean, I'm not saying it's all work blocks. You may do yoga for an hour. You may take a walk, make sure you put lunch blocks in there. I think a lot of times Everyone always thinks I want you to be working like every minute of the day. (laughs) And what I find is the productivity problem is, is that you are pushing yourself. You're almost the driver of the overwhelm a little bit because the stress is coming from us internally. So instead, add blocks in there that give you freedom, but also add blocks that are optional blocks, meaning you may have blocks of time in there that are creative time blocks. So you don't feel so structured. You may have blocks where it's an hour of free time that if nothing else is going on, this is my hour to do, you know, to work on my super stealth secret, you know, project (laughs) that I've always (laughs) wanted to get off the ground. So that's what I mean. Don't think of it like you're going through your calendar and every single week you're scheduling it. This is really, this is really a schedule you create the beginning of the year. And what I do is I create it like in PowerPoint. So they're general blocks. They're like email blocks. They're client work blocks. For me, they're business blocks. Maybe like my mother does a little bit on the food side. For for her, I have a manufacturing block. Um, I have a marketing block. So you really are just creating little blocks of time. You're not necessarily saying I'm doing this at 2.30 on Thursday. You're really trying to organize your week as opposed to schedule your week does that kind of come across yeah that does I'm, I'm glad you differentiated that so how long would it take you like you say this is a great time of year to do it which again is why I'm really glad that we've got got you on at the beginning of the year so how long would it take someone to to do that like to create like a whole year's worth of blocks and scheduling or do you do it monthly or how do you kind of do it do you do it all in one go and if so how long yeah would it would it would you need to put aside to do that task what I do is I do it as a template so it's not really organizing the entire year it's really saying this is generally how my week goes generally how it is when I wake up in the morning I wake up at this time most days I work on email around this time I work on this so it's literally more of a template and then what I do is I use that template And on Sundays, some people like to do it Monday. I prefer to do it on Sunday. I organize my week based on that template. Oh, I see. Okay. I don't have to organize my entire year week by week in advance. Ah, good. Okay. (laughs) What I can do is on a Sunday, I can say, okay, these are my blocks. You know, do I have all my client meetings scheduled? If I don't, I'm sending out notes to clients and making sure they're getting scheduled. And then when I make suggestions, instead of sending someone an email that says, hey, let me know what time works for you, I'll let someone know, hey, do you have, I have 2 o'clock and 3 o'clock on Tuesday. Does that work for you? 
And it's amazing. People will be like, okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes there's conflicts. <laughs> but most of the time, if I give them multiple options in my block time, it works really well. Um, right. I have team time. If I have a team that I work with, same thing. If you're going to have team meetings twice a week, once a week, once a month, those things I schedule in there. And then on the week before them, I think about the agenda. I'm writing down the more detail of, hey, what does this week shape or look like as it leans into my weekly template, I would say. Got it. That's wonderful. That's really helpful, actually. I can even see how I can possibly, um, yeah, take on some of that myself because I know I'm one of these people that, you know, I've kind of got my email on all day, for example, you know, so even if I'm in the middle of something and I hear that beep, I'm like, well, I better check it in case it's important. So I, I like this idea of the the blocks. That's fantastic. Very, very good. So in regards to that, then, um, how many, how much time do you think, or would you recommend that business owners spend working on their business rather than in it? So actually strategizing, like doing that big picture stuff of strategizing, brainstorming new ideas rather than the actual actual running of the business? I really see it as more of a function of when. Um, now, I'll talk about percentage, meaning I think it's a large percent of time. When you're early on, you're probably about 50%, meaning when you're in a young business, because you really have to make sure you're constantly taking a step back and looking at, am I strategically making good decisions as opposed to the fire drill of the day. But for what I find works better for a lot of people, instead of kind of making that struggle on a weekly basis or that balance so much on a weekly basis, is putting structure in place on how and when you are strategic, how and when you are brainstorming. Because what I think we all fall victim to is we hear a cool idea and then we start to chase it down. Um, and the idea is it may be a great idea, but you have to evaluate it versus everything else that's on the list. Like it really has to bump up against other priorities. It can't just be added to the list. That kind of goes back to our previous one. Yeah. Where things just kind of pile on. <laughs> and what I tend to do is I tend to do planning every year. Now for me, I do planning at the end of the year. So between Thanksgiving and Christmas is when I do my big strategic plans. I technically like write all my webinars. I write out all the courses, everything that I have planned. I actually do a 12-month plan. Now, for some people, it's like, whoa, Steph, slow down. <laughs> I'm not there. <laughs> and that's cool. That's not a bad thing. So what you do instead is, and especially we're in January now, so you can't roll back time. Um, at least I don't have that power. Um, <laughs> what I tell people to do is do, especially in January, is do a weekend two to three-hour session where you sit down and say, what are your priorities for the next six months if you can't do a year? Um, I have this whole methodology around, you know, if you're a newbie, you're probably going to look at three months of the time. If you've been in business for a year or so, you're probably going to look at, um, you should be able to get to 12 months. If you can't, you're going to look at six months. And if you've been in a business, um, been in business at least more than a year, then you definitely should be at 12 year planning. But either way, you can plan it three months, six months, or a year. Now, if we were bigger businesses, absolutely. Three to five year plan. I mean, I come from corporate America. I know what that is. I know what that means. But most people can't schedule 30 days out. Can't schedule 30 days out, six months out. So if you don't have that experience yet, don't try to do three to five years. Let's just start with 
12 months. And if you have to roll it back, roll it back. And then what I tell people to do is you plan 12 months at a time or the max that you can. And then every quarter you look at those priorities and you assess where you are, what needs to change. And then you do a ranking on any new ideas that developed in the last three months. So then you sit down and say, okay, these are the, these are the five things I said I want to get done this year. I came up with a really cool idea. Is it better than these five? And if the answer is no, you put it on a wish list because it doesn't mean it's a bad idea. It's just number six, maybe on the list. And we got to focus on number one and two. Um, and you put it on the wish list because what happens is it's hard to let go of the cool ideas because you feel like it's just going to turn into water and go through your fingers and you'll forget. But if you always have a wish list, imagine you knock out those five priorities by August. Then all you do is go to your wish list and you pull out number six and start working on it. Nice. Instead of having like 20 things sitting in front of you at once. Yes, which yeah. can be going, put you into overwhelm, which we touched on earlier. Fantastic. Oh, this is great stuff. Now, Stephanie, you mentioned, as you say, you came from corporate America um, and then you've started your own business. You're kind of, you know, born natural entrepreneur. What, uh, for those people who are in still in corporate America or they've, you know, maybe got a, a job, the nine to five, and they really want to, you know, start a, a business, what, in your opinion, are the key? things they need to take into account before making that leap from employment to business owner? The biggest thing is a transition plan. I think a lot of times we think about what do I go, what am I going to do when I'm in the business, when I start the business? But I think there should be an actual plan that will transition you from full-time employment to self-employment. And I mean that in a very specific way. Um, financially is a really big one. I think a lot of times we know, okay, we're bootstrapping or, hey, we don't have any funds, but we can probably turn it around. I don't want, I don't recommend probably. I really recommend sitting down and looking at your finances right now and saying, what can you reduce in your finances, meaning, or your expenses is probably a better way to say it. Meaning if you have HBO and all those premium channels on your cable, you might want to take that off for when you transition to your business. Because if money is going to be tight, we may have to cut back on some of those extras. We might have to, you know, if you're a person that gets your hair and nails done every week, maybe it's every other week. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, if you're a person that, you know what I mean, you love making fresh smoothies, then you may have to look at, okay, can I order a case of bananas and put them in my freezer? And, and I use these as examples to say it's very practical, what we really need to do when you think about a transition plan. And for many of us, it means a transition plan for our whole family. So think about expenses you have. If you have kids, what expenses are coming down the pipeline? And do you need to save up from maybe your corporate or your current gig to help you cover those expenses that your business may not be able to support yet? Um, and I think that is a it's a really practical and such an important thing, as well as think about from your business, a ramp up. I think we all, we feel like, like the money bags are just going to show up one day. You know, like <laughs> we go from zero to like, you know, <laughs> rolling on the bed and dollars. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like we're in a music video. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it normally doesn't happen like that, as well as you don't necessarily want it to happen like that. When it happens sometimes too fast, 
it's not sustainable. And what you really want is a sustainable business. You want a business that I make 50,000 a year every year. I make $100,000 a year every year. Or if we look at it monthly, I'm making $10,000. I'm making $20,000. I'm making $50,000. I'm making a million dollars. Whatever that number is, you don't want these like hockey stick or these you know, I make money in January, then I don't make money in July. I mean, it's different if you sell ice cream, you may have some of that. But for most businesses, you should be able to have a consistent schedule. So that's why when you're making that transition, we have to understand what is your ramp up, meaning if you have X amount of money, by what date does the business need to be able to cover household expenses, family expenses, and things like that? That's really important. I, I really like that you've you've said that about that being sustainable and not having those big jumps. Because I think particularly a lot of new business owners, um, you know, that like they do want to go from that zero to you know straight away, you know, m- making as uh, you know a lot of dollars. But obviously, there's a lot needs to happen for that to then happen, and they may not be ready. So I, I like that you've said that. You know, perhaps that slower growth is is actually a good thing rather than our fantasies of um, you know immediate success. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's and fantastic. One thing, if I can add something, yeah, is yeah. you know I'm all business, 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 and bottom lines and all that stuff. But I'm also big about family, and it's so important that you think about what this transition is going to do as far as your availability. You know, so if you're a person that goes to every recital, if you're a person that you know, goes home for the holidays, you know, whatever your family thing is, if that's going to change, prepare your family for that. Because you don't want them to feel neglected. You don't want them, they're your support system. For many of us, especially folks who are going to be solopreneurs, your family sometime is your lifeline um, for you. And it's so important to have that talk with your spouse, have that talk with your kids, have that talk with your extended family to say, hey, I'm making this transition over here and this may mean this. It may mean I work longer hours. It may mean I work weekends. It may mean this and this and this so that they understand it and they can help you adjust. You know, they're a part of it as opposed to feeling like they're kind of on the outside and and you just woke up one day with this idea <laughs> to yes. change everyone's life. That's a really good point. And would you put a time limit on that, Stephanie? So would you say, okay, because I know one, one person I interviewed um, who runs Miss Cupcake actually in the UK, and she said she said to her husband, okay, give me, I think it was a year or maybe two years, give me two years or three years, whatever the time limit was. And, you know, if I haven't made a go of it by then, then we'll we'll rethink. So for, those, for that time period, you know, she was able to kind of go, go, go to get this business up. And it's been obviously very successful and then she's been able to you know employ staff etc so do you recommend like putting a time limit on that like with your family like saying okay give me this amount of time and then we'll reevaluate absolutely um it should be a time limit on when you consider the business successful and what i mean by that is it's just like having a goal success should have some metrics around it um because that's the challenge like you know i know there's a lot of people who run big businesses but, you know, they bring in maybe 500000 a year, but their expenses are like 350000 So they're really only running a $50,000 business, uh, um, you know, even yeah. though it looks like it's a big business. <laughs> 
Um, so when you think about success, you want to put time on it and you want to put some metrics around it, not just financially, but it can be your work hours. So your commitment to your family is maybe I have to work some 12 hour days, but what I want to get to eventually is working six hour days, or I may have to work weekends for the first six months. But what I eventually want to be able to do is I'm just working six days a week. Those things are not only important for your family, they're important for you because a business can eat you up. You know, a business, there's no shortage of demands on you. And because it's yours, you know, you want to kind of take care of it and nurture it and and love it. (laughs) (laughs) It means being up at three in the morning sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Some people, some people think of their business as their child. So their creative child. Oh, that's great. That's really, really useful and helpful information. So in terms of, let's talk a little bit about competition, because as as we said, you know, when you started out vegan mainstream, um, you know, I think it was 2009, 2008, 2009, you know, well before it kind of became cool and trendy. Now we're in the midst of this amazing vegan slash plant-based kind of revolution, which means there's a lot more players in the arena, both big and small. And that includes ethical vegan brands and also non-vegan run businesses that are, I guess, cashing in on, on the trend. So what advice do you have for vegan business owners on how to stand out nowadays, both within and outside of that vegan business arena to attract customers? Well, the number one thing that I would say is making sure people really know who their customer is. Because I think sometimes we perceive someone as competition because they're generally in our space, but but you may not be going after the same customer. And what I mean by that is, are you going after um, families with small children? Are you going after... um, you know, people who graduated from college? Are you going after people who are empty nesters? You know, those are all different segments of your market that you will serve. And many people in business want want to say, I serve everyone. And the reality is when you normally try to serve everyone, you normally don't have the success you want. So when you start to really pinpoint who is my customer, who is the person I'm work, who I'm really Um, appealing to and what they want, you start to be able to differentiate your brand and your offerings because you can now start to make them unique to that audience. You can make sure the language speaks to them. You can make sure the level of support. You know, what someone needs, what my mother needs or the type of support my mother needs is very different than what I need and what my niece needs. And we're all 20 years apart. So we're different we're in different stages of our lives. We have different experiences. You know, my niece came up with technology for me. You know what I mean? We didn't have email accounts when we were kids, (laughs) but now, you know, and for my mother, she uses her computer and she's tech savvy, but it's still not so natural to her because, you know, it's not how she, oops, not exactly how she grew up. So, um, you know, if you have a product that's an online store or a web-based product, then you're going to speak to all three of us differently. And the services that you offer are going to be different. You may have more high touch because you're going to maybe an older audience. You may have a more high tech approach to it because you're going at a younger audience. Um, You may have more customization because you're going for an audience like myself, which maybe says, okay, I'm starting to have kids go into college. You know, I may have some additional funds, additional time. So I spend my time and spend my money differently. So that I really believe starts to be your differentiator. It doesn't mean you only have one target audience. You might have two or three, but when you start to serve them better, 
you start to offer better offerings. You start to be able to do things where you have on and offline services, meaning um, if you're a vegan chef, as an example, and you do cookbooks, um, but you also do personal chefing, you may have some features or support where you do personal chefing, you go into people's homes, teach them how to cook, teach them how to make things, but maybe you have some online features or you have an online um, kind of um, chef support, you know, the, the home chef support course that after you teach a person, they can jump online and take some videos to reinforce the things that you taught them. So that way you have a kind of online, offline offering. And that's a way you can start to differentiate. And depending on the age or the person, that support may be completely online. It may be all video based or someone, maybe an older generation, if you're targeting them, it may be a teleseminar because it's much easier for them to pick up a phone and call in than it is for them to log into a site. So I I don't know if I, let me know if it's, I'm not being 100% clear there, but that's really where I start to see people differentiate because they're able to serve their customer better and they go online and offline or they combine services and um, kind of, I don't want to say product necessarily, but services and a more tangible offering together. Got it. Now that makes sense. That makes sense. So in terms of that, I guess, because we're seeing some of like the big players coming in and because they've got big budgets, you know, they can kind of do the cool videos and, you know, they can spend quite a lot on the marketing. And I'm curious, because I think we're starting to see that now with, you know, we've got these ethical vegan brands, that, you know, perhaps smaller ones that have been around for years and years. And now these bigger brands are coming in with all their bells and whistles. I'm, I'm just wondering, I mean, it should, I guess we shouldn't get caught up in that and just kind of put our stuff out there regardless and do our thing and just um, attract the right people to our particular brand. Absolutely. Um, definitely. You, you have to be so careful sometimes when you're looking over in someone else's camp and it looks like, you know, as they say, like the grass is always greener. Um, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't always mean it's greener. I mean, I think we all probably know a brand that like or a business that we thought was around and like tomorrow they closed like 20 stores. Um, and they had the polished videos. <laughs> they had the, you know, that's I mean, true. They had all those things. And you're like, what happened? <laughs> and I say that to say, what you really have to understand what your customers want. And often, what they want is authenticity. Often, what they want is connection. We're big about community these days. So, a polished video doesn't always mean connections. Um, so, it's really, it's two things. What I always tell people is to match up who you are, who your brand is and connect that. So if you're, if you're a very like personable person and you know, you you have the personality that can support talking and connecting with people, then you may do more on Facebook live than you would ever do in a polished video, promotional video, just because you have the ability to support it. And that doesn't need to be edited. I mean, there is really no editing, but the idea is it, it, it allows you to cut through the, the polish that you think you need because you're using tools like that. You can do the same thing on YouTube live. Um, live, people do not expect pre-edited, everything perfect. They expect light. Yeah. That's probably the only big thing you need, but you can go to Home Depot and get, you know, like floodlights um, and, and handle that. Um, so it's not expensive. Um, but it's really making sure you're using the platforms that lean into what you're good at. If you're a great writer, then lean into that. Be clever. You can create memes and be an amazing writer and use those in social media because you have the wit for it. 
Um, if you're a great speaker, then do more speaking engagements. If you don't want to travel, do more speaking through a lot of these summits that people are doing online. Yeah. So, so really think about, and this kind of even goes back to that differentiate, differentiating yourself. You know, I think sometimes we think of the product um, itself as the key differentiator, but the brand itself, and especially if you're a solopreneur or if you're a very small business, how you represent your brand helps you cut through. And I think if you start to look at what do I want my message to be? What, what emotion do I want people to feel when they're looking at my marketing? Not just will they buy, but what emotion do you want them to feel? Do you want them to feel educated and smart? Do you want them to feel like it's exclusive brand? Do you want them to feel like they're supporting a community so they feel like they can get a hug anytime? Think about, do you know what I mean? And that's, that's cool. Yeah. I'm a big hugger. Um. <laughs> I kind of get that. I got that actually. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, cool. Now that's, that's great. I really like that. I think that's really important, I think, for people to to hear that because I know it is so important. It is so um easy to get caught up in that comparison thing like oh someone's bigger and or therefore better and like you say I love the fact that you know that's not necessarily the case and often we've seen a lot of big companies tumble uh, despite all their funds and their bells and whistles so uh, I really like the way you've said that about how to differentiate that that's fantastic um let's talk a little bit about social now I know this is a big topic in itself so we'll, we'll just zone in and, and I know that you've been on social um for for quite some time you actually um started up most of I think the vegan business owners and professional groups on Facebook, LinkedIn and Google Plus. And you've been very active yourself on social media for some time. So obviously, as I say, it's a big topic. So what can you tell us about what's working right now in social and any, say, a key prediction that you might have for what will be uh, important for vegan business owners to do on social in 2017? Yeah. I mean, I kind of hit on one already. I mean, Facebook Live is really kind of the buzz these days. Um, people really like it because it's an easy startup. Um, it's an easy way to get content out. Um, and YouTube does the same thing. There used to be a lot with Google Hangouts, but that has been transitioned over. Um, so for a lot of people being able to do these live chats, live talks, um, with yourself or with partners. So it doesn't have to be you. I know there's a f few shy people on the line here and maybe listening. And they're like, Stephanie, <laughs> I'm not speaking. I'm not, not, not. <laughs> it's okay. That's not your thing. I get it. Um, so get partners to do it um, um, or do interviews and, and so forth um, through using YouTube Live is a great way to do interviews. And what I find is that works really well in social media. What works well in Facebook Live, what a lot of people are doing is they're almost treating it like a almost like a live broadcast as if they were on TV. So, you know, tune in at 12 o'clock on Wednesdays or tune in at 12 o'clock weekdays or tune in at six o'clock Um you know, people are using that and they just get online, um, deliver a message, allow people to interact and talk with them. Um, it's really been great because it allows you to kind of see behind the curtain in a many of these brands um, yes, as well as, yeah. you know, it, it, it has a little bit more of that personal touch um, to a company um, that people really appreciate. Now, anytime you do video, like we said earlier, it doesn't have to be polished, but, you know, you have to do the basic stuff like you know, don't have 
books and sheets of paper falling off the shelves behind you. Um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm turning round as you're saying that now because I've got a big bookcase behind me. Yeah, okay, no, it's, it's looking reasonably tidy. <laughs> Things like that, you know, know, we we forget what sits behind us in our offices and many of us, you know, the office is like the dumping ground. So, you know, if you're doing video and things like that, um, you definitely want to do that. If you're doing video, you can invest in a mic. A mic is fairly inexpensive these days. Um, You can get a mic for a hundred bucks or less, like 50 bucks now. Um, So little small things just to make sure your volume is really crisp. People have to be able to hear you. Um, Because the video quality can be a little bit bad, but audio cannot. So little small things like that. So that's what I think on the social media side, groups are really popping well on Facebook, but they're so labor intense. So what people are doing is, um, you know, doing things in burst. Instead of seeing a Facebook group as something you keep on forever, you do it for a 30 day support system. Um, it's a great way to use social media, um, either as a product, so as a support on the back end, or yes. it's a great way to use it as a prep. So it's like a pre-work, pre-exposure. You walk people through maybe a 21-day challenge, and then from there you transition them into a product. So that works really well on the um, Facebook side. But um, Instagram is equally as exciting. I'm really big, and I really like Instagram a lot. Um Um, I only lean a little bit more into Facebook is because I really do like Facebook ads. Um, Do you? Gosh, now there's a statement I don't hear many (laughs) business owners say. (laughs) They're all like, I hate Facebook ads. They don't work. Oh, that's cool that you, okay. I love them, but you have to send them to landing pages. Um, Facebook ads don't work if they just go to your homepage. Yeah, yeah. You know, the only reason someone's picking on, clicking on an ad, you know, Facebook's instant gratification. So you can't go a homepage and I have to like figure out what you want me to do or what you want me, <laughs> what yes. to happen. Also, Facebook ads are hard to go from a Facebook ad to a sale. They work more for lead generation. And that's right. probably maybe like if I had a big takeaway for social media is social media, we don't own those platforms. So we all have to be very careful. You can build up a page and any one of those platforms can be snatched away. And yeah. So I'm big on social media being a lead generation tool for me as opposed to social media being the database where I'm sending everyone to and I'm building it up. I really want people on email. I really want a way that I can communicate with them directly. And so social media is my support system to find new and continue to communicate. But I'm really a big conversion person. I really want, if I have X amount of people on my social media channel, I should have a proportionate amount of people on my email list. Um, because social media is where the activity and excitement happens, but the true believers or the people that can become your customer will often make that step and jump into email and you can have more of a focused conversation because on social media, you know, if I'm reading about, if I'm looking pictures of like my cute niece, um, you know, it's cool to have a vegan purse. I'm kind of excited about that vegan purse, but my cute niece might win out. (laughs) on my attention span. (laughs) So, you know what I mean? You really have to use social media as a way to find people and identify people um, that are right for your product and then start to talk to them 
in that space and time when they're ready to buy, not when you're competing with my cute niece because she's really cute. Got it. Got it. <laughs> oh, that makes perfect sense. Thank you. This is great stuff. This is awesome. So now you were, let's talk a little bit about you and, and your business, because as I say, you've been in this arena, you know, helping vegan business owners in terms of coaching courses, webinars, um, one-on-one consulting. So tell us a little bit about when should someone, because I, I believe, as I understand it, you don't actually do the marketing for a brand. You help them to come up with a marketing strategy and do it themselves. Is that right? That's correct. Um, and actually, we I was, um, I mean, if we kind of talk, talking about what I originally thought vegan mainstream was going to be and what I ended up being, um, is I thought we would be that agency. We would be kind of like, you know, people would call us up and we'd run campaigns and so forth. But what I found is for small businesses, it's hard. It's hard to support and pay for an agency to be um, to run your entire marketing. So even for me, and I say this just so everyone knows, I had to change my strategy. I started out, I had a huge team. I had, you know, I came from corporate America, so I had a editing department. I had a creative department. You know, I had the IT group. I mean, I had all these groups. And what I found is the clients just couldn't support that level of marketing. So I had to transition and shift. And what I found is what really helps people and what I really would recommend for many people is getting someone who can set you on the right path. Because a lot of what you need to do in your business is stuff that really does need to be done internally. And I know it's hard and some of you are not marketing experts. And no one's asking you to become the marketing expert especially if you are the chief baker, you know, you're, that's your expertise. But what we do, what you do need is you do need a level of understanding as the leader and the CEO of the company or yeah. if you're a partner. You have to have the ability, even if you had an external firm, there's no way for you to know if they're doing well if you don't have some of that acumen, if you don't understand or have a vision for what you want your marketing to be. So that's why we transitioned over just because we we could help more people. We could, you know, I have people who just use me for consults. Like they call me up and or they jump on our website and they may book like five consults in a year. And it's pretty inexpensive because it's just a one hour session with me. So it's not highly expensive, but they can get help when they need it. And that I find works really, really well for people. So if you're looking for help, you know, don't always think you have to outsource it or dump it on someone. You can get there through surge resources, through a small team of people, maybe even from a freelance or even like what we do standpoint that you set the strategy or you write down a general strategy and then you get on the phone with someone who's a marketing expert or a business expert and you walk through it with them where they give you feedback. They give you an evaluation of it. They give you the recommendations. Um, because that conversation is going to be way more beneficial than if you start with a blank sheet of paper. Yeah, yeah, got it. No, that makes, makes sense. So basically, and I think in terms of who you work with, Stephanie, do you find you're working predominantly then with, say, like solopreneurs or, or small business owners, coaches, authors, service providers? Or who do you predominantly work with? I predominantly work with small businesses. So anyone who is about... Um, 15 employees or less is normally where I, my kind of, our, what I would say, our sweet spot. Um, we work with some companies that are a little bit bigger, but um, I would probably say that's our, our sweet spot is anyone kind of 
you know, 15 or less. Um, I work with a lot of solopreneurs just because a lot of people, you know, especially authors as an example, you know, they don't normally keep a large staff of people because it's normally not that um, intense until they move into coaching and training and, and things like that. I do a lot on the service side only because um, I find that was where a lot of the need was. And also there's some other great partners and people out there doing great stuff on, you know, the food side. So to me, I, I want to find a great space um, that I can make the impact in. And also, you know, with other, I kind of call them partners. And I know we talked a little bit before about competition. And I know sometimes feel people feel like, you know, you, you have to carve out your, your piece of land. But what I really find is um, others out there can really be beneficial to the whole movement forward. So we, sp- we really focus more on um, people who are trying to either add services to what they do. So maybe they do have a tangible product, but they want to add some service aspect to it. Um, but we're across the board, authors, um, skincare products, um, I'm trying to think, socks, shoes, jackets, everything really in the vegan space we've worked on. It's been really a wild kind of crazy ride. I work with vegan doctors as an example. Which Fantastic. I wouldn't have never thought that that was going to be my target <laughs> audience. <laughs> but, you know, um, and that would fall like in your service side, you know, because while you, you know, medicine is really, you know, it's not a manufactured product. Um, so though, when, you know, when you think about the service side of the business, it's really much wider than I even imagined, um, when I first started, but we do work with coaches, um, as well. And, and I think the key of what we do and, and, you know, whether you work with us or anyone, I think the key is, you know, really realizing that as you build your business, there is the dream of the business. And there's the reality of what you can accomplish in a year. And what you want to do is find someone that can help you um, mend those two together. Because sometimes the dream is a little bit far off from what can be done in a year. So what a coach should do, what someone like um, someone in my position should do is really help you hone in on what can you accomplish in the next 12 months and what is the path to get you there. You know, whether it's budget team building, whether it's getting you the resources you need, whether it's marketing support, whether it's identifying partners, it's really starting to get into that nitty gritty um, nuts and bolts of it. Got it. Fantastic. And I love that you shared as well. Thank you for sharing about your own experience, your own journey of um, having to be flexible um, and, you know, uh, responding to that need. Because I think sometimes a lot of us, yeah, we go, oh, yeah, I'm going to start this business because it's what I want to do and I love doing it. But then, like maybe you say, you have to kind of shift that model to um, to make sure it fits people's needs. So I, I love that you shared that. I think that's a really great example of being prepared to be flexible in your your business offering. So that's Absolutely. fantastic. And I think so. Oh, No, go ahead. And one other thing about being flexible, I think what we dream it to be is not always, we don't always have our business hats on when we're dreaming. Um, So that's why sometimes your flexibility is going to have to come because, you know, there's a difference between, you know, top line and bottom line growth. Um, You know, there's a difference between top line, which is your revenue and your net income. And I think as small business owners, you know, we tend to manage to our bank account. Like, do I have money in the account? Yeah, I got money. (laughs) You know, (laughs) there's a difference between once your expenses hit, how much do you really have? 
And that's where like basic stuff, like when you run a business, you have to pay yourself. You really should write. I physically write myself a check every single month. Like I'm this employee. I do it on a monthly basis because, you know, I don't want to do the accounting twice a month. <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> if you can pay yourself weekly, write yourself a weekly check. But the idea is you really have to make sure that the idea and the concept that you have, how does it shake out when you start to look at how much money can I bring in from it? How much will it cost me to deliver it and maintain it? And then how much money does it leave in my business for A, to pay me, pay my employees, and a little sliver of that to reinvest in my business. And those yeah. financial walks, and even I know some of us numbers are not our friends. Yeah. <laughs> I, get it. I mean, I'm a marketer. I mean, I did two years of financial auditing because numbers weren't my friends. And I have this thing about like the things that terrify me I need to do um, because I don't want something to hold You're back. a brave woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I still get nervous. <laughs> still, you know, I get butterflies just like everyone else. Um, Do you recommend people pay themselves from day one, Stephanie? Because I know this is something that people uh, there's perhaps you know have differing uh, opinions on, and maybe it's to do with the type of business. But like you know, some people say, "Oh no, don't pay yourself straight away. That's a luxury kind of thing." And others will say, "You know, yes, you know, do like you've just said, pay yourself from day one." So, what what do you recommend, or does it is it really depend on the type of business? I'm a big fan of paying yourself from day one. Um, now, sometimes there's not money to pay yourself with. Um, so, you know, if you're running at a loss, you don't, really don't have anything to do. But I'm really big on paying yourself. But when I say pay yourself, it has to be proportionate. So even if you pay yourself $50 a month, which I know that barely covers like, what, a water bill? Um, so it's not, you know what I mean? It's not like it's earth shattering. Um, but what happens is it, a lot of the stuff is about habit forming. A lot of it has to do with businesses are about processes often. And the idea is if you learn to pay yourself $50 a month, in three months, you may bump it up to 100. And, you know, in six more months, then you bump it up. And what happens is that number can proportionately grow as you grow your business. And it, Got it. And it yeah. starts to get you to look at it from that perspective that you know, because some people like raid their business, like money comes in and they write themselves these like huge big checks. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> like, what did you just do? Um, and it's not supposed to be that way either. You really should be paying yourself on a consistent basis because if you're emulating what happened when you were in a full time gig, that's how it worked. You got paid every single week or every two weeks. Yeah. So therefore, yeah. Do the same thing in your business and the same thing. What, what I got paid when I came out of college is totally different than what I got paid when I left GE. And it's totally different than what Vegan Mainstream pays me, <laughs> yeah, to be honest. But the reality is I've worked my way up over, over time. And even if it's $25 a month, I know that sounds like it's not a lot of money, but it's- It's a normal, it's the psychology psychology of it, I think, isn't it? I'm, I'm liking the way you said that because even if it is just this nominal amount, it, it's still kind of, yeah, I'm being paid for what I do. And it sort of reinforces that sense of self-worth, which I think sometimes a lot of new 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 business owners or solopreneurs have to, to get over, like, you know, charging, what have you. So I guess it just sort of is- a, as a psychological boost in a way and, and sets you on that right path that, yes, I deserve to be paid. Absolutely. And you really do deserve to be paid. Plus, it sets up a structure in your business. Once you get some of this, um, these, you know, processes in place is if you ever want to have investors, 
they're going to want to know where the money goes. If you just go in and write checks, first off, you have to have a separate bank account for your business. If Even if it's your, your solopreneur, please, please, please get a separate bank account. But um, I say that to say, you know, if you do want investors, they're going to want to say, where does the money go? How is it spent? How is it set up? And you want to be able to say, you know, I do pay myself, but I pay myself on a consistent basis. When people start seeing you write random checks and random amounts and numbers are moving all over the place, it'll make it hard for you to grow if you do want to go that investor route um, because mm. you won't you won't have clear sight into how, to, how you run your business. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. And you can imagine investors having alarm bells where, you, yeah, these kind of, yeah, like random spending habits that that makes sense that's really awesome this has been great and gosh we've been chatting for nearly an hour now so I knew this would happen with you because you're so no no don't apologize my gosh you've given them so much um, helpful information I'm I'm certainly picking up lots of uh, tips and and things myself so thank you Stephanie so tell us then the final question what's your long-term vision if as much as you want to share anyway you feel comfortable sharing for vegan mainstream and yourself Well, I mean, I think the biggest thing that I see for Vegan Mainstream is really creating kind of a hub, creating kind of a a destination site that is support for vegan business owners. So the idea would be no matter what stage you are in your business, you'd be able to come to us for support. Um, I'd love to have a large portion of that support to really be kind of free. I mean, we've been one of the big things we're working on as our starting point um, for that vision is doing some like free mini courses this year so that people can get started. I know it's expensive. I know it's hard. And sometimes you just need a little bit of information to, to get you started. So we're really trying to make sure that there's a good amount of free resources out there for people um, and not just free the basics, like you need to have a Facebook page, but <laughs> something that is really something that you can um, truly um, dig into and say, okay, this is something that can change the way I'm either doing um, doing things in my business. Um, and then what we really want to do is give people enough, um, give people an opportunity or the ability to get um, high touch support whether it's working with me one-on-one or give people kind of that self-paced online training course feel. Um, I love sites like Coursera and so forth. Um, So I have a little bit of a dream of, you know, becoming that type of high quality content um, for the vegan business world. Cause I, I just believe that we don't, we don't have enough of that information at our fingertips. And I'd love to, really play a role in it. I don't want to own it. I mean, that's not fair. Um, I'm a really big like sharer. So I'm hugging. You are. You're, you're a wonderful <laughs> collaborator and sharer. Absolutely. So that's my thing is just really making sure that, um, you know, people feel like there's a home. It's hard to be a business owner. Um, you can feel sometimes like you're just in the world all by yourself, even when you have a team. So I want you to kind of be able to come to like vegan mainstream and feel like you're home, feel like you're amongst friends, colleagues, you know, buddies, you know, (laughs) you you can call me staff or something like that, you know, kind of feel that you can come here. And even though we're talking professional, even though we're talking net income and all that good stuff, I do want you to feel like it's a, it's a fun, safe environment for you to learn and be, be better at who you are, be better at the type of business you have. And ultimately, 
achieve what you want. I mean, if we're trying to, I mean, I didn't get on my whole like change the world um, thing yet, <laughs> but <laughs> and I won't because I know a time, but you know, I'm really like, you know, a person about, you know, helping people with growth. And if you're trying to change the world and help the world be vegan, if you're trying to world, change the world and want them to be more plant-based and healthier and have better options, if you want to save animals, you know, those things that you're truly passionate about, I want to make sure you have the skills behind that, not just the passion. Because to run a successful business, we got to have those skills. And I'm hoping Vegan Mainstream can be, be one of those sources for the community. Fantastic. That's wonderful. Uh, Stephanie, you've shared so much wonderful information as you always do. As I say, I love the fact that you're one of the most generous people I, I, I know, particularly in this community. And a lot of people, everybody I interview has and connect with. But I think you in particular, you know, you're, you're always so generous in, in sharing your, your time and your expertise. Um, and like I say, you've been doing this for, for such a while now. You're a real pioneer in this space. So um, looking forward to, um, yeah, uh, seeing some of your, your offerings for for this year and um, thank you very very much for coming on the show and joining with me today it's been a pleasure oh thank you so much for having me I really appreciate this opportunity and um, you know I look forward to you know us collaborating and doing some great things in, to, in this year so that was Stephanie Redcross from Vegan Mainstream you can find out more at veganmainstream.com and that link is on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts and going to episode 52. Now for our vegan business news roundup. Texas fashion brand Zinc has gone vegan. Veg News reports that the company, founded in 2013 by designer Ben Friedland, is removing all animal products from its collections, which include accessories such as handbags. When he first launched the brand, Friedland used exotic animal skins. In 2015, he unveiled a vegan collection called Zinc Vegan. Then in 2016, he began to transition the whole brand to being vegan. He admits it's not been easy in that he had to sever some wholesale accounts and lost customers. And in effect, he's had to start the business over. But he told Veg News, we believe that true quality exists without cruelty. Amen to that. <laughs> what a fabulous, positive story. You know, it takes courage to completely shake up your business in this way, especially if it's been running successfully. And as we've seen, vegan fashion is becoming more and more popular as customers realise they can have beautiful, stylish and quality products without the cruelty. Melbourne in Australia is about to get its first all-vegan pizzeria, reports Good Food. Red Sparrow Pizza is the brainchild of owner-chef Michael Craig. The initial menu includes nine vegan topping combinations, from a spinach and kale pesto base topped with zucchini flowers and broccolini, to a classic margarita. Plant-based pepperoni and a beer-infused bratwurst on a barbecue sauce base will also be available. A variety of vegan cheese toppings are on offer, including parmesan, fior de latte, two types of mozzarella and feta. And gluten-free and nut-free diets will also be accommodated. It's great to see vegan eateries continue to get more and more niche, just like regular restaurants. 
Red Sparrow will open in Collingwood in February and I've already asked my friend Justin Mead from Vegan Style to go and do some research for me and report back on the best options ready for the next time I'm in Melbourne. I love pizza. I remember 20 years ago when I went vegan, ordering vegetarian pizzas from places like Pizza Hut in London and asking them to leave off the cheese. And I've got to admit, they were pretty boring. So I'm really glad that vegan pizzas are coming into their own. Fantastic. On the subject of niche vegan eateries, my original hometown of London is on a roll with vegan firsts. You may remember at the end of last year, I reported that the city is set to get a vegan fried chicken cafe. Now it's getting the first all-vegan kebab place, reports Metro. What the Pitta, fabulous name, currently operates as a pop-up, but from February it will have a permanent home at Box Park Croydon. Menu items will include vegan donor and vegan baklava. Fantastic, love it. Modern Restaurant Management magazine has named plant proteins as a growing trend in 2017. With the Impossible Burger being offered at various restaurants in the US, writer Judith Goldstein said that as vegetable protein technology becomes more refined and less costly, we are bound to see more and more restaurants using plant-based proteins to create meatless meats. She also predicted a growth in the number of vegetarian butchers as more and more patrons request meatless meat and more establishments see the benefits. Wonderful to see the restaurant trade recognise the importance of plant-based foods. The media influences society and businesses, so when industry magazines make predictions like this, it encourages more restaurateurs to experiment with alternatives to animal-based foods. Finally, the German agricultural minister, Christian Schmidt, has called for a ban on the labelling of plant-based proteins as vegan meat, reports CBS News. Schmidt has a problem with products with names such as vegetarian schnitzel and vegan curry sausage, arguing that they are completely misleading and unsettle consumers. <laughs> Schmidt has apparently already contacted the European Union's executive branch to discuss extending rules that govern the use of the terms milk and cheese to also include meat. And, you know, I'm laughing because the fact that vegan products have got government ministers into such a panic that they consider these products a threat means we're obviously making a dent and being taken seriously. So let's keep making even more fantastic plant-based proteins. Bring on the vegan meat in 2017. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate it if you gave it a review and rating on iTunes or any other platform you're listening on. Finally, I encourage you to head over to veganbusinessmedia.com where you can find more resources, including details of my media and PR consultations, copywriting, editing and proofreading services to help you grow your vegan business. I'm Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business and I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode of Vegan Business Talk. Bye for now. 